This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And we're being told, well, this is the right way, or this is what everyone should think, and this is those other people are bad. And that's what's being revealed. And discipleship works the opposite direction. Discipleship, yes, it calls us into the narrow gate of the Jesus way, but then it opens us up to a wider kind of view. Discipleship is meant to make us say, oh, you too are my sister, and you too are my brother, and I, I didn't realize that. Uh, or, or love is supposed to be shown toward our enemies. I mean, discipleship, yeah, it's a narrow gate, but it actually has a broader vision in terms of how we see each other. What does it look like to grow in resilience? And what are the pressures particular to leaders? Well, in this conversation, I sit down with Glenn Packiam. He's the pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, California, and he has written this book, The Resilient Pastor, with data from the Barna Group. You don't want to miss it. And if you're thinking, hey, I'm not a pastor, this doesn't apply to me, it does. I promise you'll find some good food for thought and some practical starting places, no matter who you are or what your role is. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right, we are here with Glenn Packiam, and he is the author of several things, but most recently, The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. So Glenn, it's wonderful to have you. We're actually on the same time zone, which is fun mm -hmm. now that both of us have moved back to California, so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, what are the chances of that? Two Colorado families making their way to California. I know, I know. So thanks so much for being here. Um, you know, as you were writing the book, so you've got research from Barna, You've done a lot of research on your own and reading and, of course, all of your pastoral experience and wisdom. What is your hope, you know, in writing this book at this moment in time for the church, given our political polarization, given the burnt pastoral burnout, right, given the way everyone shouts online? What is your hope that this, this book can be a, a chart a, a way forward? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the smaller goals in writing the book was just to help us name some of the challenges and the complexities. We, we can't solve them. In fact, in many of the, the book is outlined with eight challenges, four that are fa that face the pastor and four that are facing the church. And for some of them, I, I found myself saying, OK, so that's a snapshot of the situation that we're in. But that doesn't mean we have an easy answer. So it's at, at the very least, there's a modest goal here, a modest hope, which is to help us name it. And in naming it, it actually reduces some of the 
weight that we carry because we can say, all right, so so this is, I don't have control over this, but I can name this. It reminds me a bit of, you know, sort of Adam naming the animals. You know, you're not, you're not the creator. You're not the master of the universe, but you do have a role in partnering with God. And sometimes that means naming things. So naming it is one of the hopes. And then the other kind of hope, maybe the broader hope, is that it would point us toward the wisdom of church history, the historic church, as a way of saying, look, I know our moment feels overwhelming and it feels like, oh my gosh, we've never been here before. Uh, it's true, but in another sense, the church throughout history has been through moments like this and worse and different, you know, before. So we can glean from the historic church and then, you know, secondly, glean from the global church. Uh, there, the, the, the research and even my focus groups that I conducted with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., it really, that's essentially the church in the West. But actually, there's a lot of stories and examples uh, from the church in other parts of the world that we can glean from. And then maybe thirdly, you know, so historic church, global church, but then the collaborative church. So um, to, to kind of say, you know, moving forward, Ashley, I think part of our way forward as a church is to not have this sort of um, solo figure, lone ranger kind of thing, the, the heroic pastor or the dynamic church that does it all on their own. But to say, look, honestly, there's some, there's some learning from each other across lines of tradition, across the streams of the body of Christ, uh, and to allow that collaboration even to spill over on a local level. Yeah, like... That sounds so beautiful and so far off <laughs> often, you know, I mean, you see it in pockets or we experience it in pockets, but yeah, to see yeah. like, what would it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to actually be formed towards love? Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> what an idea, huh? Yeah, I know. I think Jesus said something about it. Um, you know, one thing you, when you do talk about some of these challenges and you have four challenges for the church, um, and one of them particularly, I'd love to just zero in on for a bit, and that is formation. And so you talk about formation, and what one thing I loved how you talked about is we, you know, we can interchange the word discipleship with formation. And you talked in the beginning of that chapter about what is revealed in tribalism is a failure of discipleship. Would you tell us a little bit more about this moment in time and? why that that tribalism that we've seen is a failure of discipleship how has the church failed yeah i mean i think you know many people have referred to the pandemic as sort of this you know maybe it's the instigator of some new changes maybe it's the accelerator of some changes in progress that's all true but i also think it's been the revealer of kind of the condition of our own you know soul so in a very biblical sense it's an apocalyptic moment as in the revealing the unveiling of right and what it unveiled is that actually we are taking in information and affections and priorities um, from an agenda that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And we don't realize it. You know, maybe this is the way that for me, you know, I'll just pick on me, I, the way that I'm scrolling on Twitter, the way that I'm, you know, clicking on on, on articles or whatever, Th those are ways that are forming me without me realizing it. And then it kind of skews our image. You know, I read this morning in my time with the Lord, Matthew 7, where Jesus is talking about the plank in our own eye. And it's such an obvious image, but like when a plank is over your eye, you're not seeing clearly, like you're not seeing the world well. And so I have this joke, you know, like a plank over your eye and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so dark out there. Well, of course it's dark out there. You've got a plank over your eye. <laughs> right, so, right. 
so there there's this counterformation that's happening or deformation that's happening from the world around us not not because these are bad people or bad news stories or bad networks i'm not i'm not insinuating that but it, all it takes for deformation to occur is for something that carries the values and priorities that are against the kingdom of God or that are not, that don't reflect this sort of um, cross-shaped, cruciform way of the kingdom of God. And and that's everything. I mean, that's that's the biblical definition of the world, right? The world is a system that organizes itself in a way that's contra God, contra the Jesus way. And so, and so this happens all around us. It happens in the mall. It happens in the media. And, and what the pandemic kind of revealed is tribalism. We, we found our way to these echo chambers. Lots of people are talking about the power of algorithms and social media. And we didn't realize that we're being fooled. And, uh, and, and you know, we're, we're basically being funneled into these, um, these herds, if you will, the way a, a farmer would, would, would herd cattle into the gates. We, we've been funneled into groups of people and we're being told, well, this is the right way or this is what everyone should think and this is those other people are bad. And that's what's being revealed. And discipleship works the opposite direction. Discipleship, yes, it calls us into the narrow gate of the Jesus way, but then it opens us up to a wider kind of view. Discipleship is meant to make us say, oh, you too are my sister and you too are my brother. And I, I didn't realize that. Uh, or, or love is supposed to be shown toward our enemies. I mean, discipleship, yeah, it's a narrow gate, but it actually has a broader vision in terms of how we see each other. Yeah. No, I think that's so helpful because, and and we've talked a lot about, my husband and I, about the, the way in which the pandemic has been apocalyptic. And, um, and, and so then what we do with that, right, when our own hearts are revealed is repent. We go back to Jesus. Um, but I think part of what you're saying, too, and what's really fascinating is that our models for discipleship have been individual and internal, um, especially in the evangelical church. And so what would it look like, you talk about, to be to, to focus on formation that's communal and habitual. And you, you say it takes a church to make a Christian and we have to live our way into these liturgies. And I love that. I love that language. Um, help us understand what that looks like, you know? Um, and I think there's some hope too, maybe as a second point about if we're able to just like live into these sorts of communal liturgies and have that disciple us, that we might be able to hang on to some of those folks who are might who have kind of parachuted out of the church in favor of you know quote unquote deconstruction. Yeah, which is a whole nother subject in itself. Um, yeah, but but yeah, when I when I was combing through some of the ways the conversations on discipleship, even some of the research Barna has done prior you know to the work we did for this book. So much of how we talk about discipleship is individual and internal. And what I mean by that is it's this one-on-one -on -one thing or it's this Jesus and me thing. And internal as in it's about my attitudes and this is sort of how I think. And again, that's important. There's no doubt there's, a, there's an aspect of how we think that is supposed to be, uh, you, you know, in this. But I think maybe <laughs> the word mind in Romans in particular confuses us. You know, Romans 12, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. But earlier in Romans, Paul uses mind to talk about 
something bigger than just the cognitive because he, he talks about the mindset on the flesh or the mindset on the spirit and how it desires certain things. Well, we don't associate mind with desires. We think about mind and thoughts. And so we've got this long history in America, especially maybe in the West in general, where discipleship is about just getting the right thoughts in. So help us to think, you know, and, and again, that's a component, but there's this whole other piece of training our affections. And James K. A. Smith has done such great work to help us rethink this, understand this, uh, the role of affections and all of that. And so because of that, we need discipleship efforts that are communal because we're formed, our affections are shaped in this sort of communal uh, direction um, and, and it's habitual. So communal and habitual are two components that I, I, sh- I won't say should replace the individual and in in internal, but should supplement it, should fill it out a bit more. Mm-hmm. So can you name us some specific communal and habitual ways in which we are formed that would be helpful for us to make sure that that is part of how we consider our discipleship? I mean, at the most basic level, it's the rhythm of worshiping together with the church, gathering together with the church. And then we, you know, who are pastors, who are curating the liturgy, if you will, we have to make sure that we're doing a good job filling in those practices in a meaningful way. So in a non-denominational tradition, let's think about the songs that we're singing. Like if this is all people are getting about God, uh, what are we giving them? You know, let's think about the sermon series. But I you you know you 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 have a tradition that you guys are part of that that has some formal liturgical elements. I'm you know ordained as an Anglican priest. So I've fallen in love with, um, or re-fallen in love with a lot of the Anglican liturgy. And and there's a reason these liturgies have survived time. It's because they express with beauty um, the the truth of about who God is and about who we are as His people. Now I I don't think we need to be prisoners to the language of the liturgy, but I do think us non-denominational folks can learn from the logic of the liturgy. We can learn from the sort of gospel shape to it, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the story that, arc of redemption a, all the way through. Yeah. Yes. There's a story arc to it. The, the, the worship service is not a variety show that we're producing, but it's got a narrative arc of the gospel to it. Um, that's how we need to think. So that's at the very basic level. And then there's other pieces to that. I think, I think if we, you know, some of the great, uh, programs out there that I've become, you know, really grateful for are like the stuff that Pete and Jerry Scazzaro have, have, you know, popularized with the emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy relationships, because it's not just a course. It's a course that comes with practices and it comes with practices that you're doing together each week. So I I, I do love that course, but things like that, if we can get to the place where, um, Yes, we're gathering people together in groups, but we're giving them some communal and habitual um, rhythms or practices. And maybe it's reclaiming some ancient ones, whether it's the examine or the rule of life, which thank God that I'm seeing lots and lots of people write about this, speak about this, teach about this, which means there's a hunger for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you and your wife have a book that's called The Intentional Year. So tell us how you've brought some of these ancient practices, these habits, and help us kind of adapt it to our modern lifestyle. What is that about? Yeah, thank you. Um, For about a dozen years or so, we've done uh, an annual retreat where we get away. At first, it was very loose and informal. And then over, you know, a couple of years in, we started to add more structure to it. And then we started to make sure we tried to do it twice a year because, you know, with kids, the the ground is always shifting, you know. So, yeah. and, and basically, the idea is the first phase of this retreat is 
a looking back, a, a kind of reflection. And that we use a tool like the prayer of examine where you say, okay, so where did I sense God's um, joy or love, or where did I cooperate with him in this last six months or in these this last season? Where did I fail in that? Where do I need to repent? Where were some of the, the markers? And man, it's such a good thing even for, for friendships and marriages because you start to become aware of, oh, these were the moments that actually I, I've, I've, not, I've been more irritable as a person or I've not been as gracious or as attentive as a parent. Um, so you're, you're using this tool of the prayer of exam to kind of reflect back and let the Holy Spirit point out uh, some of these things. And, and then also recognizing some of the gifts. Here's some of the gifts that we can give God thanks for. So there's a, rejo- there's a reviewing, there's a rejoicing, there's a repenting, there's a requesting grace um, for um, the, 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 the turn. And then, you know, phase two is kind of this taking inventory and this is, you know, you can name whatever spheres of life. We just picked kind of five spheres, you know, our, our prayers or life with God, rest, Sabbath, um, renewal, which is different than rest and prayer. It's like, what are you doing for play, for recreation to kind of replenish, you know? Uh, my spiritual director, by the way, it, he would always say to me, what are you doing to, to play, to remember kind of the lightness of being a child of God? So prayer, rest, uh, uh, um, renewal, and then um, work and relationships, or relationships and then work. So um, the, take an inventory of that. Where where do I have intentional practices in each of those things? This is different than goal setting because goals are like, I'm going to, you know. This is about saying, do you actually have rhythms or habits related to these five spheres? And, and if so, what's missing or what's not working? And then the final phase of the retreat is actually turning a practice into uh, a, an event on the calendar. So let's say you have a practice of once a month we want to get together with friends for a dinner. Great. So what night of the week is that going to be? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's kind of the idea of the intentional year is mapping out um, practices that match our values that that go along with listening to the Lord for the uh, you know a theme for the season, uh, and then actually building it into our calendars. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. I love that. I think that's so helpful because often it's like we either get very idealistic, you know, and I'm going to do all of these things, but then we have no actual plan of action, you know, to be able to implement it. 
Yeah. That sounds really like such a helpful resource. You know, as you think about formation, particularly what, you know, in what ways do you feel like you have failed personally in relation to your own formation and how, you know, how have you grown in some of these things you're talking, I mean, you are a pastor and your book is called right. The Resilient Pastor. So, you know, <laughs> how have not, you- <laughs> It's not a biography, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but how have you grown, you know, through the years in your own ministry and your own family and marriage, you know, through hardship? Um, I know this is like, tell me your life story, very large question, but, you know, how, how has resilience and formation been grown for you practically? Well, there's certainly been failures. I mean, there's certainly been- um, the reason why I need those kind of checkpoints is because it helps me identify a, a slide into the wrong habits, you know. So at some point during the pandemic, I realized I, I was binge watching sitcoms every night, you know, and that, that was sort of medicating this numbness or whatever that we were all kind of feeling. And I, I realized, you know, this isn't the best thing that I'm doing because then I'm going to bed too late and not getting up early enough to pray. Um, but again, if you don't have, it, you almost need, it's like rest stops, you know, or truck stops on the way when a long road trip, like it helps you kind of hey, take inventory here. Am I, how's the tire pressure? How's the gas, you know, in the tank and all that. And, and so those, in some ways, there was a book a few years ago called the power of habit by a business writer called Charles Duhigg. And he, he basically says there's something he discovered in organizations called a keystone habit, where when you do this one thing, it actually triggers a, a series of changes. Those little periodic checkpoints, and it, it probably needs to be a monthly checkpoint. When I'm at my best, I have a monthly half day alone with the Lord where that's like a personal checkpoint. And then, you know, we have the six month retreat thing. But th that's, that becomes like a keystone habit where you can evaluate where, where else am, are, are things kind of going wrong. So you do need those fixed moments. But I think what I've also learned, Ashley, is life with God, life with communing, fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about is dynamic. And it, it's like so many relationships, right? Like, so for those who are married, who are listening, maybe you have a weekly date night or whatever. That's great. But that can't be the only time you talk to your spouse, right? So oftentimes throughout the day, you're texting or calling and you're checking in. And it's sometimes it's about mundane stuff and who's picking up the kids and what do we need from the store and, you know, uh, and but that's the stuff of life. That's the fabric of, of of real relationships. So so it needs to be with our relationship with God. There is there are these fixed points and practices, and then there's this sort of organic stuff where we just learn to become aware of the Holy Spirit and learn to become aware of the presence of God with us, so that it becomes reflexive. And I found myself in a in so I told a kind of a, a negative story of the binge watching sitcom Seinfeld and Frasier, you know, uh, but but. I also discovered over the last year or so that after I kind of, you know, started to move away from some of that, when my head would hit the pillow at night, I found myself just exhaling and just sort of saying, thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'm still with you. I'm following you, Jesus. And th that's the sort of reflexive relational um, prayers uh, that come out of this abiding with Jesus. And so there, there's no substitute for that. Uh, we've been through a, a lot of upside down, uh, ups and downs. Um, you know, 16 years ago, our church in Colorado experienced a, a very turbulent scandal. Uh, 
13 months after that in 2007, it was a shooting, you know, so we, we've been through these these hurdles of life. And of course, now, even with with stepping into a new role here, there's no substitute for abiding in Jesus and nurturing that real relationship and love for him. Um, that's beyond just checking the box on a practice. Yeah. And we're such good box checkers, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, if we're actually being invited into something so much more rich and full um, and, and complex, uh, box checking won't cut it. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You know, as we, as we think about resilience, particularly, um, in what way are you, you're in a new position at a church and you're thinking about formation as a leader, you know, what does it look like to grow resilience in, in a system that you're coming into? Uh, uh, you know, what are you thinking as you're on the ground of how do I continue to encourage folks here to grow in resilience, to be formed towards the right things instead of some of these, um, you know, that are the malformation of our desires. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I'm grateful to be coming into a church, Rock Harbor, that has cultivated resilience because of a deep life with God, because of a hunger of worship and prayer and a love for one another. And when I think about the components of what it takes to cultivate resilience, it is those three things. It is we we have to be able to uh, or or we. We want to say yes to the invitation from Jesus to renew our love for, for him. That's one. I'll just name all three, and then I'll say a bit about each. Renew our love for Jesus. Um, reorient our relationships so that we have the right people around us. And then remind ourselves of the hope of resurrection. And all three of those show up um, in, in the scriptures. You know, resilience is about a return. It's about a recalibration. Resilience doesn't mean that you never experience duress or stress or ups and downs or turbulence. It's like going to the doctor, and this is probably, you know, for the listeners who are of a certain age, uh, where, you know, we're creeping up to that age where you go in for a stress test for your heart or whatever, and they put you on the treadmill and they get you running. The, the, the issue is not, oh my gosh, your heart rate got elevated. The issue is that what they're testing for is how quickly did you recover? And that's what resilience is. It's a marker of health because it's about recovery. And for followers of Jesus, what does that recovery look like? It looks like a renewal of our love for Jesus. And the picture of this is Peter, after the turbulence of denying Jesus and, and you know being embarrassed, and Jesus finds him and he says, Peter, hey, hey, do you love me? And I love this story so much because, you know, like so many preachers, we focused on the Greek word for love. And he says, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And, you know, there's all this stuff. But the most obvious word is the word me. He doesn't say, do you love my church or do you love the kingdom or do you love miracles or do you love a move of God? He just says, do you love me? And I think that's the invitation that the Lord offers all of us. That's where resilience begins is this invitation to renew our love for Jesus and then secondly, what it what it takes to cultivate resilience is the right relationships around us. And this is similar. Again, we're talking about formation being communal. Um, resilience is communal. Um, you know, we imagine Paul as being this apostle that we, he was stoned and shipwrecked and all this stuff, and, but he soldiered on. No, he had people all around him. He had, he had people that were comforting him, that were teaching him, that were helping him. The reason he's pleading with Yodia and Syntyche to for them to get this right is he's counting on them as co-workers. He's counting on Epaphras and he's counting on Timothy and he's counting on Barnabas and he re- restores his relationship with John Mark by the end of it. 
Paul has this whole sort of constellation around him that helps him. Uh, and we need that. So when we think about formation and, and cultivating resilience, there's an overlap there where do we have counselors and therapists and friends and peers and sages and mentors? Um, do we have this sort of constellation of voices around us? And then the third thing, the hope of resurrection. I mean, Ashley, that's just the, you know, maybe one of the, the, the greatest gifts of being a follower of Jesus is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, that means the word, you know, it's the, the Beekner line, you know, the worst day will not be the last day. Like this is not the end. Um, and so we just have to take the long, long view, you know, for pastors. Uh, great to have a one-year vision and a five-year vision, but man, let's also have like a million-year vision and like a post-resurrection new creation vision uh, of Jesus and of the kingdom. Those are beautiful. I'm going to write down all those R's. Those are great. Um, how do we, you know, what does that look like on the ground for you? So in the same way, maybe that like in the intentional year, you're helping people not only be reflective, but also say like, what's that space in your calendar? What this actually practically looks like? So in what way, you know, for you as a leader, especially coming into a new church, are you focusing, like, what do you do with some of those things? I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, I, again, one of the gifts of being here at Rock Harbor is there, there are rhythms of prayer and worship. So I'm coming alongside and just saying, yeah, let's, let's keep going through, let's throw some gas on that fire. But if there, if, if there was a place where people are not, even the team or the leaders or the volunteers are not praying together, that's, that's step one is let's cultivate our love for Jesus together. Um, and then secondly, I mean, we're, I'm looking forward to a, a retreat day where we're going to kind of map out the discipleship pathway and to say, okay, how are we doing this? Not just for ourselves, but actually how are we inviting people into it? And practically speaking, I, I know there's like this, there's like this two extremes. We either highly, you know, program discipleship or we kind of say, nah, it's all organic. And, you know, we, we just sort of throw stuff out there and hope it works, you know. And I, I, I personally, what I'm aiming for is a, a little bit of an in-between here where it, it reminds me of the map of the, um, the subway in London, the underground. Um, if you've ever seen a map of the underground, it's really neat, you know, and it's fairly easy to navigate. But if you try to use it to navigate uh, above ground, <laughs> you're in trouble because <laughs> it's not to scale. It's not, you know, it's very messed up. So you might be walking between stops and you think it's right there. It's not right there. <laughs> and the guy who invented it knew that he was messing with geography, with reality, you know, um, but he did it for the sake of clarity and simplicity. And that's what I think a discipleship pathway does. A discipleship pathway, does it actually, does the life of faith actually look like that? No, of course not. It's messier. It's not as, you know, symmetrical, but we can help people say, hey, for example, uh, you know, maybe you start with the alpha course and then you go on to, to this course and then we're going to help you, you know, launch out into table groups and then we're going to invite you to these nights of prayer. You know, so there's this there's at least some rubric to it, which, again, you know, Presbyterians, Anglicans, you know, there's a long history where we've you know, those traditions have had a, a logic for those practices. 
that in the non-denominational world we're like i don't know let's just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what's <laughs> see what works yeah <laughs> see what's new and flashy yeah yeah yes no i thank you for breaking that down for us a little bit i think it's really helpful to begin to envision you know how might we habitually and communally be formed and what does that look like and that there is a funnel or a pathway or you know that there is something a framework to help us be, you know, continually coming back, right, to who we are in Christ, who he's called us to be, what is the hope of the world that we are embodying. Well, thank you. So you've given us so many things to think about. Um, and your book is so helpful for, for of course, pastors and ministry leaders. Um, but yeah, anything, you know, any concerned Christian that feels a little bit at sea in this moment in time, it provides a lot of hope. So thank you for helping us name, as you said, some of the challenges um, that are not new, and yet we might feel them in a particular way in this moment in time. Thanks so much, Ashley. So good to talk to you. You're welcome. Yes, yes. Um, and then lastly, I would love to hear your laundry routine. <laughs> the reason I asked <laughs> ask this question, um, it's it's a nod to Kathleen Norris, who came back to faith um, at, in her book, The Quotidian Mystery. She talks about yeah, she talks about seeing the Catholic priest clean, do the dishes, right, after after the Eucharist, that he's cleaning out the chalice. And if God is concerned with not only, you know, the spiritual state of our hearts, but things like the dishes, then maybe he's worth trusting. Of course he is. But um, so, yeah, so I do love to ask everybody their laundry routine. Well, I I throw it in the laundry basket in our room, and that's winning for me. And then <laughs> my... My my dear wife does the sorting and running of it, and then I fold. I help fold the uh, you know the clothes and put them away. But I am more of a dishes guy. So so you mentioned dishes. You know I, I am my contribution to the laundry is not as high, but my contribution in the kitchen is is very high. I, I like cooking and cleaning, and uh, and uh, my I have a very strong opinion about how the dishwasher is to be loaded, which could be why no one else wants to right. Say <laughs> if you care that much, you can do it. <laughs> Exactly. Yes, that's why my husband does the laundry in our house because he cares very a lot about how things are folded. <laughs> so it was great. You can that can be your thing. Yes. Well, thank you, Glenn. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you and blessings in your in your new call. Thank you so much. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Glenn Packiam. You can find out more about the book, The Resilient Pastor, as well as all of the other cohorts and other sorts of options to really apply that information at the links in the show notes. Thank you for being here. It is always a pleasure to have these conversations. And as we continue through oh, out 2022, and we look forward to 2023, we have some really fun shifts and changes and exciting things in store, I don't want you to miss it. And the best way for you to stay updated is if you subscribe. Then the podcast RSS feed will be right there in your podcast player and you will not miss a thing. So stay tuned for more as we journey together. And I always love to leave you with one small step so we can take what is big and thoughtful and actually connect the dots to our everyday holy lives. And so this week, as we consider this conversation with Glenn Packiam, I want you to simply pray for the American church, pray for the Western church, pray for the church where you are located, because I know not everybody lives in America. 
but that's where I live. And so if you are an American, please pray for your local town. Pray for your country, not so that we would puff ourselves up in pride, but that the good news of Jesus would actually permeate our church cultures. So that's our job, whether we're pastors, whether we're leaders, whether we are pew sitters, pray for the church. We know Jesus will never leave his bride and that he will grow it. So we pray he will do so. And yet he invites us into this mysterious work with him through prayer and through just showing up. So I'd encourage you to pray, show up, bring your questions, and know that you have a seat at the table. Thank you for being here. Would you share this with a friend if you found it helpful? Remember, these big things matter, but so does your laundry.